We'll go ahead and get started here. Quinn, do you wanna you wanna pray for us? So we'll go over it just pedagogically uh, in order to kind of help us remember it. Do you guys recall what we've been covering the first couple weeks? Week one, what, what were we covering? What's that? Persecution. Yeah, the persecution and the, the spread of the church. And you see... Um, We'll see how uh, Christianity was uh, politically inconvenient and then it was persecuted. Uh, whatever happens with Constantine, after that it becomes politically convenient. So then it's no longer persecuted, but it's rather upheld, and which brings its own difficulties with it. So yeah, you see this proliferation of the spread of the gospel, even, I'll read from one of these, uh, even from the... Um, those who were attacking the, the academics of the day, those who were attacking Christianity, um, they were saying this, in some private homes we find people who work with wool and rags and cobblers, those who fix shoes, that is, the least cultured and the most ignorant of kind. Before, they, um, before the head of households, they dare not utter a word, but as soon as they can, they take the children aside, or some women, who are as ignorant as they are, and they speak wonders, sharing the gospel about this Jesus Christ who's claiming to be God, but he's obviously a man, and he's crucified, he's been raised from the dead. They're speaking these wonders. If you really wish to know the truth, leave your teachers and your father and go with the women and the children to the women's quarters or to the cobbler's shop or to the tannery, and there you will learn the per perfect life. It is in thus that these Christians find those who will believe with them. So this, this intellectual um, from Rome is casting aside the Christians um, by saying it's just from the lower class. They won't talk to the head of the household, but in doing so, he's actually giving us a little picture of how the gospel is spreading, and it's spreading amongst the least cultured. And so, sure, the father of the head household won't uh, talk to us. That's fine. We'll, we'll convert the, the women and the children. And you need to have that long-term perspective because before you know it, a generation has passed. And those children who grow up hearing about the gospel will soon be themselves the head of households, and they will themselves be soon mothers raising up their own children. And so you see the spread of the gospel not amongst the academic elites, not amongst the political figureheads, which is why Constantine stands out so starkly, um, but just amongst the common people, which is not surprisingly, that's what you see in the Gospels. It's not the religious elites, it's not the Sadducees, it's not the Pharisees, it's not anybody like that. It's just the common crowds who begin to follow after Jesus. Fishermen are his most dedicated followers. So, 
That's what we kind of covered this first week is this persecution um, and the spread of the gospel. And then, so the gospel begins to spread, but then you have Constantine who issues this Edict of Milan in 319, which doesn't make it the official religion, but it makes it tolerable throughout the, throughout the empire. And so you kind of bring this pressure off, and then Constantine, he orders these councils because you're not so isolated anymore. You're not so hunkered down because of persecution. So now Christians across the Roman Empire and other places are able to communicate a little bit more freely and see, oh, we don't all agree. <laughs> so what do we do? So then you, you begin having these, these councils and these debates about what's going on and everything like that. And they, that is where they fully, it takes, it takes the church a long time to simmer on this, hundreds of years. You're in 325 before you have the Council of Nicaea. And then again in 381 where they have another one to kind of iron out this, who is Christ and the deity of Christ. So if it takes the collective church hundreds of years to figure this out and iron it out, don't be so hard on yourself if you don't feel as though you fully grasp the depths of who God is and who Christ is in our fleeting time here on earth. That's okay. We just have to be faithful to what we know. So this week we're going to be talking a little bit more about the, the Christian life. What did that look like? The day-to-day -day Christian life, what did that look like? Um, how did they gather together? And then with the remaining time, what we're going to be looking at is a, a rise in the papacy, which sets our trajectory then going towards the Reformation. Um, so that's where we'll begin. So does someone want to read from Acts chapter 2? It's in the handout here. Does anybody want to read from it? And we'll get this, this first uh, glimpse here from the historian Luke of what the early church looks like. If anybody wants to read that. Yeah, go ahead, Quinn. So we see all these, these early Christians who come in, come in for um, Pentecost, one of the, um, or Passover, and then Pentecost later. But then they don't leave uh, because this, this Christ has risen from the grave. And so you have this influx of people who have come to Jerusalem expecting to go home, but now they're just kind of lingering around seeing what's going to happen uh, with this idea that's beginning to spread amongst the Jewish people. And so you have this need then, uh, a bunch of people coming in who perhaps bring enough money or enough food to last a week or so, several days there, several days back with a couple days within the city. And now you're, you know, you're, you're there for quite a while. So there, there's need to arise for the Christians and what they're doing is immediately, inherently, without any programs, what do you see them doing? Yeah, they're, they're sharing. 
And this is, this is not a communistic thing where it's being dictated by down, you know, from above. No, it's, it's, it's out of their heart. It's, where do you, you see them? They were together. There's, there's all things in common. They're selling their possessions. Barnabas is one of the ones who sold his possessions. Um, and giving it to all as, as they had need. And this sets the trajectory of the Christian life. What does it look like? And this is the day-to-day -day routine um, in the midst of the, we look at 325 and the Edict of Milan, and yes, that's true, it, it helps move the overall shape, but the day-to-day -day life of these normal Christians is getting together, getting together, gathering together, sharing all that they have, and it's quite simplistic. It's quite simplistic. And so what we have are some, uh, a little bit of historical accounts of what that looks like. And the first one is uh, Pliny the Younger. Trajan, who's the, the emperor, Pliny the Younger, is a, um, he's a, um, he's a, a senator and becomes a, a, a leader of Bithynia, which is in northern Turkey. So maybe you've heard of Ukraine lately, right? On the south end of Ukraine is the Black Sea. Keep going maybe, what? 200, 300 miles south. Keep going straight from those ports in Odessa. And keep going south. And then you're going to be in Bithynia, northern Turkey, which is where this is happening here. And if you read the whole exchange between them, it, you begin to see um, much of government has not changed, right? They're talking about money. I just put it in a little bit here in the handout. Uh, but they're talking about um, Pliny to Trajan. He's talking about the, un the aqueduct, but it's not finished. Uh, we need more money. We ran out of money. Um, and then we get on here. To, what do we do with these Christians? Pliny to Trajan, he says, it is my custom, sire, to refer to you in all cases when I am in doubt. You see how he's this... The senator, you know, this regional leader, making himself quite comfortable with the, with the emperor. When I am in doubt, uh, for who better can clear up difficulties than inform me? <laughs> Nothing's changed. Um, I've never been present at any legal examination of the Christians, and I do not know, therefore, the usual pennies that the penalties that are passed upon them or the limits of those penalties or how searching and inquiry might be made. Um, they talked about the age of those. Again, whether the name being, being a Christian is enough to otherwise be innocent of a crime or it should be punished or only the crimes should be uh, that gather about it. So is the name just being a Christian, is that enough or do they have to do something else? Uh, so then he goes on. He says, in the meantime, this is a plan I've uh, adopted in the case of the Christians. I ask them whether they're Christians. If they say yes, then I ask the second time, then a third time, warning them about the penalties involved. And if they persist in order, I order them to prison. For I do not doubt that the admitted crime, which it may be, um, is, is, should be punished. But if there's accusations made by other people about these people who are Christians, then we will begin to publish them and begin to punish them. He says, um, let me go on here. Still others. There were, 
Those names which are applied by a former, uh, their first said that they were Christians and they denied, insisting that they had been, but they were no longer. And they re recanted many years ago, uh, more than all oh, 20 years back, and they all worshiped the image of God and, and they cursed the name of Christ. Okay, so we got them to recount. But they declare their guilt was an error, simply that on the fixed day, this is where you get a little insight of what's happening. On the fixed day, they used to meet before dawn and recite a hymn amongst themselves to Christ, as though he were a god. So far from binding themselves by oath to commit any crime, they swore to keep from theft and robbery, adultery and breach of faith and not to deny uh, any trust of money deposited to them when they call upon, they're, they're called upon to deliver it. So basically what he's saying is, so we have these people meeting together before dawn, and when we see the people, Roman Empire, Pax Romana, we have peace through force, and so when we see people meeting together before dawn, we gotta break it up, because it's either a riot that's gonna be happening, or it's a band of thieves, or it's something else that's horrible. But these Christians, they're meeting together before dawn because they don't get Sunday off, right? That's not part of the cultural norm. Uh, they're meeting before dawn. It seems as though it's almost daily because they're not giving a fixed day. It seems as though it's almost daily, it seems like. They're meeting before dawn. And, and actually, we don't have to worry about it. They're, they're, not, um, they're not banding together to, to, for theft or robbery or adultery. Actually, they're encouraging each other to refrain from those things. This ceremony over, they used to depart and meet again for food, but it was of no special character and essentially harmless. Kind of wonder, these Christians that were persecuting, right? Like, this is what I've heard. This is what happens from somebody who claims he used to be a Christian. It's entirely harmless. They also had ceased from this practice after um, the edict I issued. Um, let's see here. And it goes on. And so you have this, this, um, this edict that, this, that was given um, from Pliny and Trajan that went on for several hundred years. If they are, uh, it's almost like the, um, if, they're, if they're accused, then you can look at them, uh, look into it. But if they're not accused, just leave them alone. But obviously what happens, your neighbor who doesn't like you accuses you of being a Christian. And it's thus the investigation begins. So you, you see these Christians early on, how they are um, meeting together almost uh, on a, a daily basis, not for um, what the world on the outside looking in cannot understand is that they're meeting together not for ill, but for, for good. So then we also have the, the Didache, which is a, um, um, it's from about 130, um, uh, maybe a little bit after that, second century. Um, and it's the, the teachings of the, the 12 apostles, Didache meaning teaching. And um, a little bit into the, not just the Christian life, but some of these early teachings that is happening here. Does someone want to read this? This is from the, the first chapter of, uh, of the Didache. If someone wants to read that. Yeah, it's quite long, so. Uh, there are two ways, one is life and one is death. 
Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. So what are some things that are standing out? These are the teachings. Obviously, what is this really close to? A lot of parts in the Bible. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, almost verbatim. Almost verbatim. Yeah. So you're seeing a lot of these teachings of the early church, which are how you think is shaping how you act. So these teachings are coming into the minds and the lives of Christians. So it's almost natural that we would assume and presume that their actions are going to follow suit. And it's, it's almost like a, a paraphrase of the Sermon on the Mount is what you have here. So you have the way of life and the way of death. And it, it's just, you know, the narrow road and the wide road. What is, what's standing out here? You bless those who curse you, right? Abstain from the desires of the flesh and the body. And if anyone strikes you in the right cheek, turn to the other one also. Not one mile, but go two with him. What do you guys think? What does this mean here? Indeed, it has also been said, let your own sweat in your hands until you have discerned to whom you will give. What is it? Yeah, so what happens if you, if you put some coins in your hand for a little bit of time, it, uh, your hand doesn't sweat. Put those coins in your hand for a while, just naturally because of the content, or the contact and everything else, your hand begins to sweat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's under this, this rubric of, of charity. And I think what's happening is that the Christians are being so... Perhaps we're elevating these early Christians in ways that we shouldn't. Um, but we are. They are our forefathers, right? Um, I think what's happening is their charity is so indiscriminate. It's not quite as profitable as it could be. So he's saying, let the alms sweat in your hand. He's not saying don't give it. But you're so eager to give Hold on to a little bit. Be discerning about who you're giving to. Contrary to so many other Christians throughout history where it's like, no, you, you should be giving, giving more, giving more. In the Didache, in these first couple of centuries, we see them going, all right, all right, pull back the reins a little bit. Let's use a little bit of wisdom in our, our, our prodigal giving of, of how it's going out. We also have... Um, just, just a little tidbit so you can get a life, of, a picture of the life of the Christians. Um, and there's a, a text we had to, um, had to translate in seminary. Um, this epistle to Diognetus. I don't know if you translated it, Joel, at all. But they, um, 
it's, it's hard to do source criticism on it because there was one copy they found and it was in the library and then the library burned down in the 1830s, I think. And so <laughs> the one copy they had, it's gone. So this is it. Um, and it's, uh, this one is, is from about 130. And it says, but inhabiting Greek, as he's talking about Christians, and he's uh, writing to his friend to uh, make him contemplate the faith. And what does this mean? It says, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot, each of them that has been determined and following the custom of their natives in respect of clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary conduct. So these Christians, if you're in Rome, you're going to act like a Roman. Food, clothing, and ordinary conduct. You're in Constantinople, you're going to dress that way. Wherever You're in Gaul, wherever it might be, you're going to be acting that way. They display to us the wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share all things with each other, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Make sense? They're citizens of the land, they pay taxes, they do all of this, but they're treated as though they're foreigners. We don't want them to be among us. Every foreign land to them is their native country and every land of their birth, a land of strangers. They can go wherever and they can fit in. Every native land is their country. They can go anywhere and they do move. The gospel spreading, not through stagnant people. The gospel spreading through people moving. And they can go to these lands and make them their home. But even the land that is their birth land, even that they regard that, that's not really their home. They keep speaking of this home that is to come, basically. They marry and do all things as all others. They beget children. They do not destroy the offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. That's one of the things that stands out. <laughs> they have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws. At the same time, they surpass their laws. The laws that we have, they don't just obey them. They surpass them by their own lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, yet abound in all. They are in dishonor, and yet they are very, their very dishonor is their glory. They are evilly speak, spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled, and they bless. They are insulted, and they repay insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. So a little glimpse into the, the life of, of, the, of the early Christians and what that looks like. One more here, Justin Martyr. Uh, and then we'll kind of talk, to, talk about the, um, not just the Christian life, but the, this rise in church structure and how that looks different. Justin Martyr. Uh, does anyone want to read that? Matt, do you want to read it? Not a day called Sunday. 
I can finish it out. And to those who are present, a portion is sent by the deacons. And they who are well, uh, they who are well to do and willing, give uh, what each sees fit, and what is collected is deposited with the president. The president meaning just he who presides over this thing, um, which. Who helps the orphans and the widows and those who, through sickness or any other cause, are in want, and those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us, and in a word takes care of all who are in need. But Sunday is the day in which we all hold in common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a chance, a change in the darkness and matter, made the world and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. I think there's more here than we realize. So if you look at the beginning, uh, so, so they're meeting on Sunday, the day of creation, and it's the day, not only the day of the first creation, but the day of the new creation, Christ rising up from the dead. So they're um, seemingly to all gather together on, on these Sundays. Uh, cities and countries gather together in one place, and what happens here, the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophet are read as long as time permits. And then the president or the he who is presiding over it, he verbally instructs and exhorts the imitation of these good things. So what do you see as the, the primary thing in these early, early, Justin Martyr, who's from 100 to 165, what's primary? When they're gathering, what's the first thing you do? Read the word. Absolutely. Read the word. Very, very early, um, you will see the Christian church gathering together, and they are a people built around the word, sustained on the word. Um, you go back to Ezra, the great revival in the Old Testament. Is focused on the word. That gives them their identity. We as Christians, this is what gives us our identity, is the word. And so when we, early, early on, one of the first accounts of what we have happening on Sunday mornings is that they are people of the word. They're reading it, as we have with Ezra, and then he who is the president, who is presiding over it, is going to give some instruction from the word, not only kind of its instructions, but then an exhortation to say, here it is, let's do that this week. 
Um, and then what you have happening, uh, we're running out of time here, what, what you have happening then, all the gathered together, people are quite curious about this, what's happening, so you have non-Christians there as well. The concluding of that, then they'll go into their love feast, which becomes quite mysterious, what's happening. Because what happens is they say, non-Christians, you can leave now. This is for the Christians, which is like, this is what we do. We say, don't partake of this unless you're a believer. That's what the early church, they would do. We say, you're not a believer, you can leave, we're gonna have our meal together. And um, so there begins this great speculation. Uh, this man, Jesus Christ, who died, rose from the dead. Okay, that's quite suspicious. He claimed to be God, but he was a man. Suspicious as well. Well, these people, do you know what they do? Us Romans, we just, we don't want children. So we just expose them, abort them after they're born, basically. Let them die. Well, these Christians, what they'll do is hear for their cries and go and get them. And so the Christians begin to be known for this. They would gather up the children that were unwanted by anyone else, mostly women and other sons that might infringe on the firstborn, or anybody with a defect is certainly, certainly uh, left out to be exposed so that you don't bring dishonor to the family. Uh, the Christians would get these people. So then the rumors begin to spread. Okay, you have this thing that's called a love feast after you tell everybody to leave. That's suspicious. Okay. Um, and then you eat of the flesh and of the blood at these love feasts of this God who rose from the dead, but he was human. Like, you, you can see how you're trying to put all this together. So the rumors, and then you have these children that nobody wants that are dispensable. There must be a catch. So rumors begin to spread that you have the blood and the, the, the flesh is actually these children. So what will happen? But you must be sworn to secrecy. The, the, the secret can't get up. So everybody who's been there a while, they all know the gig. You put the baby in the loaf of bread. You bake the bread, and then whoever is new that day, they get the honorary position of being the first one to cut it. To their whore, they are the ones who have cut the, the child, and thus they can't say anything. So that's the catch. And those are the kind of the rumors that begin to spread about these Christians and their love feasts that happen after uh, they, are, they are put aside. But they, you see them... Uh, persevere through all of this um, and then they take up a collection and again they're taking care of, of, in, of whomever they can, the sojourner and the stranger. So this is a little insight into the Christian, early Christian worship, word focused, early Christian life, what did that look like? You're, you're a sojourner and stranger and this world is not your home, but you can live at home anywhere. You, you follow the customs of the Romans, and you follow, obey the laws, but you far surpass the laws. And this is your, the, kind of the ebb and flow of the Christian life. We're, okay, seven minutes. We'll get into this church structure of what is happening here. As Joel mentioned, uh, you have this conversionary experience of, Con, of Constantine. Uh, I, I personally, I think he was converted. Um, if you know, if you, you know, you don't know for sure, but that would be my suspicion. Just reading um, some of his letters, 
and his, his desire to be baptized on his deathbed and how it's, um, um, I think it's easy for us to go, or you're using Christianity as a crux, but I don't know the weight of carrying a Roman empire on my shoulders. I don't know what that looks like. And it's quite audacious to take the symbol of this faith that is not popular. You know, it's not among the elites. It's among the rabble, as we talked about. And to put that as your main insignia, that says something, you know. Uh, and, and then reading some of his, his, his letters are, they're, they're quite impressive, actually. So um, I think we can be charitable in some ways um, towards these people. But so he gives his Edict of Milan in 319, and that says uh, Christianity, we're, we're done persecuting Christianity. Uh, but it didn't make it the official state religion. That happened under um, Theodosius, this Edict of Thessalonica in 380. Um, and now you have it becoming the official and not the, the state religion. Well, that kind of makes everything really confusing, right? When, everything's, when everybody's being persecuted, if you want to claim to be a Christian, this kind of filters itself out, right? So if someone's willing to be publicly baptized, it means you're willing to die for the faith. Post 380, um, post 319, certainly post 380, uh, you have a lot of people flocking to the church because it's socially expeditious, it's convenient, it'll help you advance your career, especially now politically. If you can imagine, there's politicians who might not be genuine, right? Um, so you, you have this, this new um, wedding together of political power and church power, ecclesiastical power. And um, there's also changes happening in the Roman Empire. Rome's an old city. Rome's beginning to be run down. Constantine founds Constantinople. And um, it's this beautiful new city, and everything works well, and everything functions well. And over there in Constantinople, you don't have these Germans coming down from the north and invading, nor these Gauls coming all the time and invading, and you're not constantly attacked by barbarians as you are in Rome. So you see this a political movement from, from Rome towards the east, towards Constantinople. So now you have this wedding together of political power and ecclesiastical power. And here's there's four major cities of Christianity. There's Rome, which is a, a, uh, a political power, and also a church power, ecclesiastical power. Then you have Constantinople, which is a political power, but they don't have much church heritage. You have Alexandria and then Antioch as well, which are still major cities for Christianity, but they have no political power. So what Rome does is begins having this apostolic uh, secession is what they begin to do. They go, no, we can go all the way back. We can go all the way back. So when, when you become having, when you have these uh, councils happening and you have all these bishops coming in, how, what's the power play? How does this work out? We're from Rome. We got this. Even though our political power isn't quite what it used to be, Constantinople's on the rise, 
um, especially after Diocletian uh, separates the empires, east and west. Um, and then you are not to, who separated the empires? Judah, east and west. I forget, I don't remember. But anyway, the, um, you have, oh, it was Diocletian, okay. So then he, um, you see this rise of Constantinople. So what's happening is Rome is that they're, they're grasping to this power. And you see this, um, throughout scripture, you have the, the pastors, um, the elders, and this word um, bishop, basically. They're all the same, Acts 20. Um, and First Timothy and First Peter—they're all used interchangeably. To be, they're just kind of showing different roles of what a pastor may be. He'd be, he'd be elder, yes. He'd be probably older um, amongst the congregation. Be well thought of. He's a pastor. He's going to shepherd his people, bringing them along to the waters of Christ. But he's also going to be an overseer and say, where's this congregation going? How can I help them and keep them safe? So they're, they're not different roles, but different functions of this same role. But what you begin seeing is uh, church will go into this urban center, okay? Uh, let's just use Rochester. Church comes into Rochester and starts here, begins to grow. Well, what happens is that then this church will start other churches, maybe not in Rochester, maybe, but also in Pine Island, Zambroda, Byron, Casson. Now, naturally, these churches, Zambroda, Pine Island, Casson, all of those cities will begin looking towards Rochester and the, the pastor there and the church there as kind of their spiritual fathers. I think it makes natural sense. And so what you have is no longer a... Um, a, um, an understanding that the, the pastor, the, the elder, and the bishop are all the same. You see this bishop kind of rising up. He's now the, the, the head one here is now he's overseeing not just his church, but all the other churches around. Does that make sense? So you have this, and now what you have is happening is in, you have the bishop of Rome going on. So this rise of this bishop in Rome who's trying to edge apostolic secession. How do we meet up when we get together for these councils? Against the backdrop of that is the decay and the absolute fall of the Western Roman Empire that's happening. And one of the pivotal figures is, um, is Leo, Pope Leo the I. Again, um, he seems to have a good heart. Had, it's from his writings that we understand two natures of Christ, one person, two natures, which is um, quite a gift to the church, right? And so just because he's a pope earlier on doesn't mean he's so evil. But what he does do is grapple and grasp for the supremacy of this uh, bishop of Rome which is the Pope, but give you a little insight here. Lord, I've heard your voice calling me and I was afraid. I considered the work with which was enjoined to me and this, him becoming the Bishop in Rome. And I trembled for what portion is there between the burden assigned to me and my weakness, this elevation and my nothingness. What is more, 
to be feared than exaltation without merit, is how he sees himself, gets his position without merit. The exercise of the most holy functions being entrusted to him who is burdened in sin. Oh, you have laid upon me the heavy burden. Bear it with me, I beseech you. Be my guide and my support. This is Pope Leo in one of his sermons upon becoming this, uh, this bishop in Rome and all that it meant. But with the backdrop of the downfall of the Roman Empire, you have Attila the Hun, who comes in 452. He's called the Scourge of God. Uh, Attila the Hun is. And um, there's a city, Aquila, on the northern part of the Adriatic. And that has just been taken over by Attila the Hun, which means everybody knows Rome is next. And Leo, with some of his companions, he goes into the enemy camp and he talks with them. Who knows what was conversed or said, but Attila the Hun, the scourge of God, as he was called, turns away. So that this, this bishop of Rome, with his words and with his wisdom and with his wit, is able to turn back this fierce army, this fierce army, which the, this, this ebbing Roman army could no longer do. So as the society decays and civic function collapses, you have this man who's beginning to take it on. Naturally, more and more people are going to be looking to the church especially when he saves you from Attila the Hun. Several years later, the Vandal King, uh, Genesera, comes, and he talks with them outside the city, and he says, okay, I understand we're not going to stop you. It's him. It's not, it's not the magistrate. You know, it's not the emperor. It's Leo who's talking to him. And he says, okay, you can come into the city. Don't burn the city. We can't rebuild. Don't burn the city. Don't tear down the walls. And don't kill us, and don't kill the women and children. Take whatever, take whatever you want, that's fine. And they do. For two weeks they go and they plunder, but they don't kill anybody, and they don't burn the, knock down the walls, and they don't burn down the city. He saves them again. And so naturally what you have is this, I think, godly man who was doing the best he can given this situation. People begin looking to him and saying, you lead us. You lead us. Follow that. The people after him might not be so godly. The people after him might not be so well-intentioned. And so you kind of see how all of these pieces are working together to give you a, a papacy that is on the rise in power and um, drawing the, the strength of the church away from a local congregation um, to, to Rome itself. Any, any questions about that? All right. Oh, yeah. I was just wondering, do you think, do you think there was a, a sort of a noble motivation to maintain purity and creed through the church from the top down as well? What, through the what? Through the, from the top down, sort of maintain purity of church creed and, and belief and doctrine. Um, you know, sort of like to use your Rochester yeah. You know, uh huh. A realization that church is on their own. And oh yeah, 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 yeah. Right? I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh yeah, so as his archbishops kind of rises up in power um, to also help watch over. For sure, right. You know, if you might be classically trained and he's someone who's gone through uh, several years and becomes a pastor out in some, yeah. It, it sort of makes the motivation for a papacy more of a difficult thing to, to think through, right? Because there's some practical, uh, practical good that comes out of that, that level of organization. You said it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not as easy to, to, looking back through all of the ungodly popes, it's easy for us, especially as Baptists, you know, Reformed Baptists, to go, papacy is evil. If you go from this side and you go, my city's getting burned, oh, no, we're not. And here's this godly man who says, I don't deserve this position because of my sin. God help me. Well, that's a different story. Yeah, it, it doesn't make it so black and white. Yeah. All right, we're running late. Let's go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that we stand in the line of godly women and godly men who have been so faithful to you. But God, we realize they are faithful to you in their certain time and in their certain place only because of your spirit carrying them. And so we ask that your spirit would carry us as you have placed us here in this time and during these days, that you would guide us and that you would lead us to be faithful to you, God. And we ask in these waning moments that um, are going to fly by before worship begins, God, that you would prepare our hearts for worship, that we would come and adore your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.